0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Schur, CFO of Goldman Sachs. Stephen played a big role in our first ever Investor Day, the first in 150 years, which took place here at our New York headquarters just this week. Uh, We're going to be talking about the day, Stephen's time at Goldman Sachs, and where the firm goes from here. But, Before that, we're here with Jen Roth of our Global Markets Division for a quick markets update on the five numbers she's watching right now. Jen, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much. Good morning, everyone. Um, As Jake said, my name is Jen Roth. I manage the Global Currencies and Emerging Markets business in the Securities Division, and I'm ready to, to talk about these five numbers. Okay.
0: What's the biggest number you've been looking at? $33
1: Thirty-three billion is the number that I've been closely watching. That is the number of inflows we've seen into emerging market funds in 2019, and I'm closely watching to see if we're able to replicate that in 2020. Thus far, we've had eight billion of inflows, so clearly a very strong year. But uh, given that you're not going to have the support from core rates that you had last year, we want to see if that can be replicated in uh, in, in this year.
0: Okay, so what's a number that's getting a lot of attention, but doesn't really tell us exactly what we need to know?
1: For the past couple months, the number that everyone's focused on is really the global PMIs. Um, pretty much, there's a huge focus on growth after last year's monetary policy easing from both the developed market and emerging market central banks. On average, the PMIs have been above 50, which shows we're in expansionary territory, where a number below 50 shows we're in contractionary territory. But um, you know, in, in my mind, these are more of a gauge of expectations as opposed to hard data. And we should be focusing more on export data and CAIs as opposed to these global PMIs.
0: CAIs are current activity indices, That's right? correct. Okay. So what's a number that has moved a lot or hasn't moved at all that's caught your eye?
1: For me, one-year euro vol is really what is super surprising to me. We're at all-time lows in euro-dollar volatility vol. We actually hit below five, which, as I said, is all-time lows. And you look at that, and that's the same phenomena across currency pairs. Given all of the uncertainties in the market, whether it's the U.S. elections, whether it's the newfound concerns around coronavirus, and the fact that we're at stretch levels across risk, risk assets, I think there should be more vol premium in this curve.
0: So what's your theory on why vols remain so low? Well,
1: there are a couple reasons. The main two reasons is really the perception that developed market central banks are not going to be in play this year. And we've had continued systematic selling of vol, which has really depressed the vol curves.
0: Okay. So what number are you thinking about for the future?
1: I would say that number would be three. And those are the number of days into the Iowa caucuses. As we know, the race is incredibly tight between the four leading Democratic candidates. Whoever wins Iowa will most likely get a five to 10 point boost into New Hampshire, Currently, Senator Sanders is doing quite well in both Iowa, New Hampshire, and really a lot of the other Super Tuesday states. So if he wins the first two, the momentum could carry him to the nomination. The market is pricing very little risk in vol markets around the potential of him being the nominee, with dollar-yen pricing only 30 basis points of gap risk for Iowa, which is only three days away at this point.
0: All right. Um, And how about another number in the news that's caught your eye?
1: So something I've been watching very closely is the number of confirmed coronavirus cases in the U.S. As of now, um, the market has pretty much been paralyzed with uncertainty around the broad-based implications of this particular virus on growth, and obviously there are significant health concerns. So I'm closely watching to see if this number gets larger and has bigger implications for growth within the U.S. as well as um, as well as outside.
0: All right, thanks, Jen. Now over to our next segment with our Goldman Sachs CFO Stephen Shur. Stephen, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much.
0: So we're coming off a landmark event. Uh, uh, Goldman's first investor day in 150 years. Congratulations on getting through that. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, you're still alive. Tell us a little bit about the day and, and what do you think the investors and others in the audience picked up about Goldman that they didn't already know?
2: Yeah. So the day was an interesting one. I mean, when, when we said we opened the firm, we literally opened the firm. And so the front doors were open and four or 500 people came marching in and, and I think, I think they came away with a view that the firm was quite genuine in its intent to be more transparent and engaging with them. And we were, that was our intention. And I think they came away with a better understanding, not just of targets and facts and figures, but I equally think they came away with a more general sense or a better sense of who we are, depth of talent, who's running the firm in, in a broader sense. Equally, I think they came away with a view about our technology, given what we had on display. And so I think I think the firm showed well uh, in the context of opening its doors and letting people in for the first time and giving them a sense of what the firm's about and where it's going.
0: So obviously the idea was to... Um- you know, to sort of explain the firm to an external audience. But talk about the internal dynamic. What went into preparing it? And what did we learn by going through the process of setting these targets and putting out some goals there?
2: Yeah. I first would have to say that I think the investor relations team led by Heather Miner did an extraordinary job uh, at putting this together. Uh, You know, what went into this at the beginning was a view that David, John and I had, which was we wanted to run the firm in a more transparent way, meaning the firm needed to open itself up and explain to people why it was worthy of engaging with the firm, either as an investor or frankly speaking, to engage us, you know, in business. And I also would say that I think for many of the 40,000 people who work at the firm, this was an exercise equally at exposing the firm to them, you know, in ways we hadn't before. The foundation, to all of this was a three-year model that we started to develop, which frankly, we hadn't had for 150 years either. And so we started to plan. And... That's not to say that you can predict what the markets look like a year, two years, three years from now, but you need to start to plan and set up a medium or long-term plan given the investments that we're making. And so that was the foundation of it, was a three-year business plan for the firm. And off of that, you know, we looked at targets that we could articulate at the enterprise level and some at certain businesses as to what people should expect and hold us accountable for.
0: So Stephen, you spent time yesterday with investors after the session and 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 beyond that. What was the most interesting piece of feedback you got? And 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 you know what really what really broke through for you?
2: Yeah. So I did spend quite a bit of time after the event uh, with our investors, and you know people were fielding a range of different questions. But but someone came up to me, and in giving me feedback, gave in a very succinct way what I thought was the most profound that I had heard, which is he felt that the firm rendered itself more investable uh, on the back of the investor day, meaning we gave the community, the investor community, quite a bit to digest and to think about in terms of what the forward proposition was for the firm. And I think in looking back, putting aside the bill of particulars on the targets, I think what people saw was quite impressive. I mean, I think they just go through the segments for a moment. They saw a firm that has an investment bank that is beyond formidable in terms of its position but still strives to achieve ever more notwithstanding its commanding position competitively it saw a global markets division that recognizes where it sits at an inflection point in the market not particular to goldman but to the market and i think rendered a very candid and clear-eyed assessment of what their challenges are but equally the direction they're going to meet them, including building platforms, staying edgy, acknowledging where they fell short and having a very clear view about where they're going. And I think that, you know, is a is quite a formidable sort of, you know, picture to be drawn. They saw an asset management business that is bigger, broader, deeper, more durable than they had imagined. And I think, you know, opening that lens, as you and I talked about, I think was a very big deal. Uh, in the context of the investor day.
0: I had had no idea it was the most successful at accumulating new long-term fee earnings of the asset managers. Correct.
2: I mean, we knew it and assumed others knew it as well. But in point of fact, they didn't. And I think opening that window onto that business gave investors ever more to chew on about the forward proposition of the firm. I think we show them a consumer and wealth management division, you know, that on one hand has historically owned a very enviable business in terms of its ultra high net worth, but I think showed considerable promise at being what we want, which is an edgy, aggressive, growing, forward-looking digital consumer bank that spans a range of different wealth strata. And I think that, you know, was a very forward and positive view on the firm. And then I think as a general matter, you know, we showed ourselves to carry kind of forward engineering prowess to put at the business, which is now organized and very clear eyed about where it's going and being led by a group of people who come with you know, considerable history and pedigree. And so the person who said to me that, you know, you showed Goldman to be a more investable proposition, I think was reflecting on all elements that I went through. Businesses that are edgy, commanding market share, very self-aware of where they are, or opening up a window onto a profile of the business not known. All of that, I think, is even more significant than putting out specific targets themselves. Because again, people are now going to look at us in a different light and think about the forward of the firm, which I think holds you know enormous promise. And importantly, I think they do as well.
0: So, so one of the targets that you put out there is a, a minimum 13% ROE in the in the medium term, which. We just got defined as three years. Yes. For those who weren't necessarily absorbing everything that went on that day, or didn't, or, or weren't there, what, what's going to drive those higher returns?
2: Well, I think the drivers of those returns are going to be several things. One. Just in our base core incumbent businesses, businesses that have defined Goldman Sachs for the better part of our history, those businesses have room to grow and areas in which they can expand. And so they will, whether that's investment banking or the securities business or investment management or the like, all of them have opportunity for growth and will harvest that growth in the context of building some momentum around an increasing ROE. I think the second piece are the newer businesses we're in. So think of Marcus and the consumer business or Apple Card or transaction banking, where over a three-year period, they will start to reach a level of maturity, you know, where they will start to throw off incremental revenue and do that on a higher marginal margin. Now, the the interesting bit about that component of it is that a three-year window for those businesses doesn't, in my mind, really reflect the true potential of what those businesses can produce both to the returns of the firm over the longer term. So call it 5 years or more because these are businesses that will still be on the upward slope to get to their maturity level and we will still be investing heavily in them and so the returns from those businesses within a 3 year period is more muted than I think what, you know, they will demonstrate over the longer term, which is why we equally said, in addition to setting greater than 13% ROE or 14% ROTE, is that we would hit at least mid-teens as you look at the longer-term horizon for the firm itself.
0: One of the peculiarities of starting a new lending business is you have to build reserves. Um, For those who aren't super immersed in bank accounting, explain what that means and why that's- doesn't give you a full picture yeah. of of the uh, the firm's underlying profitability. Sure,
2: sure. So whenever you extend credit, whether it's to a consumer or otherwise, you take a reserve. There are accounting rules that determine how much that reserve needs to be,
0: and the reserve is
2: reserve is a reserve against the possibility potential. or potential loss right. that you will uh, incur as it relates to that loan or a portfolio of loans. So you set aside some amount of money that you hold out for the potential for loss. So it is not... Economic loss in and of itself.
0: But it's reflecting your books but as a loss <clears throat> upfront, front Correct.
2: Right? It yeah. hits the bottom line of the firm. So the challenge in that, the burden that it puts upon the firm, particularly as you grow a business, so let's take the Apple Card business. You start from zero. And as you grow out that portfolio, uh, you are building a reserve in the context of the size and magnitude of the portfolio you're building. That burdens the business during the growth phase because when you hit a point of maturity, the easiest way to think about it is you've taken a reserve. Loans leave, loans come in. When you're substituting one for the next, it doesn't change your reserve. So when you hit a fairly steady state, the impact of that reserve is rather muted. Um, but when you're in a growth phase, this is a it's a punishing proposition, and so we're feeling that. And we were quite open with people, you know, uh, yesterday during the investor day. But equally, I've done it on the calls. Where we're quite clear that this will have, you know, a fairly significant impact. And it's the cost of growing from so starting a business, nothing to right? something, correct?
0: So one critique that we've heard from um, from analysts and others is that the thirteen percent ROE is is not exactly aspirational relative to some of our peers. How do you think about our competitive position relative to the other banks and that and that 13% target? Yeah.
2: Well, we all have slightly different business models. So, you know, what one bank can return will be different than another. Some banks have a bigger, much bigger consumer business. Other banks have less so. And so the comparison sometimes can be, you know, reflected in the different business models that exist. I, I heard the same view. In fact, going into the day, you know, my assumption was we would be criticized to the extent that people felt maybe we were a bit soft and not as aggressive or ambitious in the returns. This is the first time we put targets out. And I think if we meet them, and I'm confident we will, um, and it will take the organization to deliver on them, we'll be quite content as will the investors in terms of you know what we will have achieved. But there's some element of conservative bias in them. You know, We, for the first time, did a three-year model, for the first time put out targets, and we didn't leave ourselves sort of right up to the line in the context of what we can deliver. But I think they are ambitious enough. And, and candidly, as I pointed out to investors yesterday, these are not defining of what our ambition is our ambition is to exceed you know the targets that we have set for ourselves and i think as david said in response to a question that was asked of him we're not asking people to go to sleep now for three years and in three years wake up and we'll tell them if we hit or not this will be a progression and if if and to the extent we start to do better then you know there's always the possibility of upping the ante and you know and recalibrating where where our objectives sit.
0: So a lot of our or a lot of our Goldman economists have been on the show talking about. Um- the prospects for growth and and they're pretty optimistic. They're a little bit above consensus both for global growth and for U.S. growth um, this year. But what if what if they're wrong? And how do you think about recession risk as it relates to the goals and sure. in terms of our business plan?
2: Sure. So uh, I'll kind of answer that question two ways. One as it relates to what we set out, what we set out by way of our targets and our performance, we did in a way that almost every other bank does, which is we do not try to forecast a meaningful upside or, as is embedded in your question, a meaningful downside. Meaning, so long as the market and the economy behaves within a fairly narrow range of where we are, these are the results that we think we can produce, and other banks do it exactly the same way. If there is a material fall off, so we hit a recession or some other circumstance you know, impacts the economy and therefore impacts our performance, I think investors understand that the achievement of our targets, you know, will be different, right, than what we have otherwise articulated. The other way to answer the question, which is less about our targets and more about the firm, is the firm operates with you know, in a sense, a recession playbook, meaning we're not hoping that nothing happens. We are risk managers and therefore need to anticipate what might happen. And in the context of what might happen, whether our economists are forecasting it or not, you know, we have plans for how we will manage the firm and what we will do about risk and overall exposure in the context of an economy that, you know, then shifts. Just one last point on this. I think an important point to make is, I said in my remarks, in my presentation, We are not beholden to lending targets, meaning, you know, let's just take our consumer business. It's not a startup outside Goldman Sachs. It's a startup inside Goldman Sachs. It's not playing for its, you know, round B or round C funding. It's not looking to achieve lofty objectives if those objectives are inconsistent with where the market is. And so we don't play to a lending target. We have a budget. We know where we will be, but it is based on an assumption about the underlying economy. And if that changes, so, so will yeah. we. Correct.
0: So uh, for 100, and, Goldman's been around for 150 years. For roughly 140 of those years, it was an investment bank, yes. uh, pure investment bank and trading house at some level. So recently- um, Obviously, the firm became a bank in the wake of the financial crisis. uh, Not not
2: quite so recent.
0: Yeah, uh, 10 years ago now. So you have a phrase in your slide that says embracing the bank model. And so two questions. Why did it take so long for Goldman to kind of embrace – its own bankness as it were. And, um, and does that mean Goldman's going to evolve to look a lot more like a JP Morgan or a city over time?
2: Yeah. I don't think we have in mind a model that we're evolving to other than the one we care to set for ourselves as a bank. So we will be a bank. We are a bank, but, but we're going to embrace the bank model on our own terms meaning we're not racing to become JP Morgan or or another bank. Why did it take so long? I, I think for a long time, we quite liked the businesses that we were in and didn't feel a particular need to sort of play to what comes of being a bank. meaning capital markets activities, trading activities and the like were where we were living and I think what we were relate to is recognizing the value of funding that comes or the benefits of funding that may come through the embrace of the bank. And I think for us most meaningfully and and at the early stages of this embrace of the bank model you know is a lot about embracing a more diversified, less credit sensitive, funding plan for the firm. And as I also said in my remark, in the embrace of the bank and looking to lower our cost of funds because we are a bank, we're not looking to sort of depart from what we know to be our core strength, which is a lot of what you described. We remain a formidable investment bank. We remain a formidable trading house and intermediary of capital. I just want us to do that using lower cost of funding as an input. Being a bank helps us do that, and so that's what we're embracing in the first instance. And I think we came to the, a later realization of that perhaps than we should have. But you know, here we are, and I think we're at a moment now where we can do this on a different platform, you know, than where competitive banks are. We're not going to build branches. We're going to do this on a digital basis. And I think both on the asset and liability side, there's opportunity for us to grow and grow the firm.
0: So, what are the things? that I think caught a lot of people's eye was the story around asset management. Mm-hmm. And people knew we we're an investment bank. Yes. People knew we have a big global markets business. What I don't think people appreciated was the size, scale, and, and sort of performance of that asset management business. And in my short tenure here, it's grown from $900 mm-hmm. billion up to over $2 yep. trillion yep. Dollars in asset management. Talk a little bit about how that, that part of the firm fits into the broader story we yeah, for yeah, investors. Yeah.
2: Well, I heard the same comment, you know, where have you been and why haven't you been talking about this? And I think there's some validity to that. I mean, I think one of the benefits of this push toward transparency in kind of all of its forms is that we will awaken people to sort of strengths in our business, frankly, in and outside the firm, that nobody had a full appreciation for, and I think asset management is probably not alone, but it may be the most significant uh, of it. Which is, I don't think people had a f- had a sense of just the breadth and scope and diversity of the offering that we had, and in the absence of that information, drew their own conclusions about perhaps a certain competitive inferiority to the business that that, in point of fact, is very different, you know, than the reality. But I think you know Julian and Tim. Did a great job yesterday at really opening the aperture on that lens and showing people what we have and equally where our ambition lies in terms of taking that business along a different alternative path and, you know, bringing in third party money and the fee income that has, you know, the potential to be derived from it. So I think it was a very good day in that in that regard.
0: One of the reasons people can see that now is uh, about a month ago, and this is super wonky, so so bear with us here, but um, we changed the way we report we did. our business segments. Um, we, we had a
2: busy January.
0: We had a busy year. Yeah. So you said one of the one of the ideas around the whole resegmentation or changing the way mm-hmm. we report was to give more transparency to the business to yeah. help people understand it. How do you think that's played out? H- how's the market reacted yeah. to that? How, what do investors yeah. feel about that new, uh, I the think, new, new model?
2: Yeah, so I think the resegmenting uh, actually played to the high side. Higher than my own expectations, just in terms of market reaction to it. You know, you always come at these things and you think, and as, as I know you think, you know, you try to look for where's the cynical reaction going to come. And truth was, there was very little cynicism expressed about what we did in early January in terms of the new segments, in part because I think it it lays out the business of the firm in kind of very straightforward uh, terms. And it doesn't cause people to have to think and guess what sits where. It is a very good blueprint for the forward direction that this firm is taking. And I think it was a very sort of clear manifestation of what David John and I had been talking about for the better part of a year which is we want to grow investment banking, we want global markets to take lift, we look at asset management in the broad spectrum of our offering and we look at consumer and wealth management as as you know a dedicated set of businesses toward the individual as a client of the firm and I think that resonated with people the notion that we took INL and disassembled it and took those businesses and put lending and other activities in the businesses and in the segments that bear responsibility for it was a very good sort of, you know, formal step to do it. And I think equally the orchestration of all of this and the the choreography of it played really well, meaning we came back out of the new year and first about a week to 10 days ahead of earnings gave people the new segments, the description of them. It gave people time to digest it then we did earnings and then two weeks later did the investor day all on the basis of the new segments and the kind of new window into the firm
0: okay beyond beyond investor day uh steven David's announced a lot of new initiatives Mm since becoming CEO. He has a big target, $750 billion uh, on the sustainability front and financing. He announced last week at Davos uh, an initiative around diversity in the Mm -hmm. boardroom uh, and IPOs. A lot of changes, some cultural ones, changing the dress code, or at least formalizing a more informal dress code. Uh, How's the firm adapting? Uh, I'm not wearing
2: a tie today. Yeah, me
0: me neither. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) how do do you think the firm's... uh, dealing with all those changes? Well, I think the firm's dealing with it quite well.
2: I mean, you know, it 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 bears understanding that the firm had a very big change come upon it, you know, a year and a half ago, which is David came in as the new CEO. And, you know, by the way, it's not typical that the entire C-suite changes, but it did with both, you know, John and I joining David. And so, that brings about change. And change can sometimes be quite refreshing inside an organization. It it gives lift to a new energy and a new direction. And I think some of what David is doing is putting his own imprint on the organization. But I would say, you know, notwithstanding the initiatives you mentioned, different dress, et cetera, et cetera, I think that, you know, David is equally quite attuned to the core elements and principles that have driven this organization for 150 years. So I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that there are some deep foundational elements to this firm, including focus on clients and customers that's not leaving the house, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, we may have different, you know, elements and sort of cultural winds that are blowing through. I think the firm is still quite core to the principles that has, you know, that's made it successful for as long as it's been.
0: You've been here 27 years? Yes. Now CFO. How Actually, did you get almost here? Almost 27. Almost 27. Almost 27 years. H- how did you get here and how did you end up as CFO?
2: Well, both were a little random. How did I get here? So I I practiced law for about uh, a year and a half before coming to Goldman in 1993.
0: Not as a lawyer, though.
2: As a lawyer. Yeah. I didn't come to Goldman as a lawyer. No, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. correct. And so I, uh, I got bored uh, as a lawyer. Uh, quick you as lasted a an year and a half quick, longer quick, than I did. Quick as that yeah. was. And uh, actually applied first to Goldman and got rejected. That seems to be a common theme. It seems to be a common theme. Yeah. Then had the letter go in a different way and, and you know, came in and was a first year associate in Fig. Um, and then my career has taken, you know, a pretty winding path from investment banking into the securities business and through capital markets into our financing group through strategy and consumer and then finding myself in the seat of the CFO. You know, I I suspect that I come to this, this latest position as the CFO, you know, being the beneficiary, though it wasn't necessarily intended that way of having seen a lot of this firm, you know, from different perspectives and not just one. And it helps in the context of thinking about, you know, how to partner with David and John in running the organization and all that comes with being the CFO of the firm. And so, it came through a wandering path and I think it's been a fun twenty six years and the twenty seventh year is proving to be busy one ever more interesting. <laughs> exactly.
0: So being CFO at Goldman's a little different than other banks mm-hmm. and you run In addition to sort of the classic core CFO function, you run what Goldman calls the federation. Yes. How do you spend your time uh, between the CFO job and what is a pretty big administrative job?
2: So there's always, I mean, there's inevitably one week every quarter, which has earnings intensity to it. And so I needless needless to say, spend quite a bit of time on that. There are a number of functions, engagement around liquidity and capital and sort of conventional CFO stuff. That I spend probably a third to a half of my time on. And then I spend a good deal of time, you know, in partnership with you know our technology area, with our compliance people, with legal on a variety of issues, needless to say, with Treasury and Services and so forth. And so there's a wide sort of array. of of parts of the organization that I spend a good deal of time with. And I think it all feeds into, you know, the, the way in which we manage the firm, which is there's a certain partnership and a, you know, a collection and a village that it takes to sort of run and manage the firm. I think it's part of the genius of the place. And it's probably reflected most in the seat of the CFO, just in terms of the scope and range. You know of engagements that I have over the course of a day or a week.
0: So you mentioned earlier that it's not typical for the entire C-suite to turn over all at once, right. but it did happen in your it, case with David taking over the chairman CEO job, Waldron taking over the president and COO job, and you taking on the CFO job. Now, you've known each other for a long time, but what surprised you about how that's come together and, and how have you uh, managed to allocate your time?
2: So we have known each other and we've known each other probably for the better part of 20 years, you know, going all the way back to our investment banking days. In fact, I remember interviewing John Waldron when he came in as a lateral and he and I were in the same MD class and the same partner class. And so there's some pictures floating around that, you know, age us all. Um I would say there's been very little surprise, honestly, in the way the three of us, you know, have engaged and worked. I mean, I think it's playing in much the way the three of us thought it would. You know, we we have a lot to do. We started off, John and I kind of double-teaming more than we probably needed to, but came to the fast realization that that wasn't necessary. And I think we now have kind of an informal division of labor, and I think it's working well. And we speak to each other frequently and engage with each other. And so I think it's working as we had hoped it would.
0: So uh, we sp- spent a lot of time talking about um, what's next for Goldman Sachs. Um, now with Investor Day behind you, what's next for Steven nothing oh,
2: we'll abs- no- We're going to go to the playground. There's just there's nothing, nothing to left to do now. Uh, maybe the bar. Uh, yeah, maybe the bar. Well, look, I think You know, in some sense, though, this is always the adage, you know, the kind of the work begins now. I mean, we can have a day and sort of celebrate the fact that we undertook something that was a very big and momentous event for the firm. But the the sort of afterglow of that is going to burn out pretty quickly. And now we need to deliver. We've set targets for ourselves. And it's just just I've set the target or David or John, but the firm you know has set objectives for itself and goals and now we need to collectively live up to them and it means that you know the organization is going to have to march to the rhythm of a, of a revenue budget that it has set it's going to have to mind its manners on cost we're going to have to be as agile a steward of capital as we laid claim to be yesterday and so i think the work begins but the work the work is the work of the firm i think 40,000 of us now you know, hold the obligation to deliver on what we said we would. And I have every
0: confidence that we can and we will. But I think the work begins now. All right. Well, Stephen, uh, no beach today. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Good. Thanks a lot. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our other podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. Thanks for listening.